This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It with Dan and Vanessa this evening. Hi, Dan. Hey, Vanessa. How are you doing? I'm super well. How Excellent. are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. It's been three weeks off for me, so I've uh, missed it tremendously. It's and nice it's to hear your dulcet tones back on oh, the radio. They'll be dulcet soon. They're not quite there yet. <laughs> Look, coming up tonight, we've got a great show. We'll be speaking to Nathan Oxley from IC12 on hardware design, prototyping and manufacturing. And as a long-time listener to Triple R, I'm sure the conversation will range a bit further afield than that as well. But uh, in news this week, we wanted to reflect on the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference 2017, Indeed. which went on all of last week. It did. We, we, we touched on the fact that it was happening last week. Uh, this week, we can uh, talk a little bit more in detail about what they actually were speaking about. Now, um, probably the most interesting or the, the highest profile launch of the of the. Um, weekend was probably uh, around the uh, introduction of near-field communications in the iPhone. Now, um, uh, it's something that's been available in Android products for a very long time, and it's the backbone of a lot of our... uh, I suppose, swipe chip technology. Your credit card has an NFC in it, um, along with a lot of other technologies. And it's good to see that uh, iPhones are finally coming to the party. Yeah, so we've been able to use it for our Apple Pay tech for a while, but what they haven't done is released it to um, developers in the past. And so now developers should be able to code in the ability to use that NFC chip payment type thing with their apps rather than just Apple Pay. So there would have been a lot of um, details to be ironed out in the background about verifying payments with banks and it's it's highly regulated and um, Apple went on a lot about their encryption and being able to be sure that, you know, people's payments were safe mm. when they did things. So obviously they've come a long way of that discussion, which is really good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what else has come out of uh, WWDC this week, Vanessa? One of the features I thought was nice, well, obviously they released a lot about, you know, what they're going to do with new models in terms of desktops and laptops and processing power and fancy graphics cards and chips and those sorts of things. If you're into that, you should really go and have a look at it all because the details are a little bit monotonous to to run through (laughs) on air. But I thought some of the nifty features that people might appreciate is things like screen recording. So if you want to share clips of something, you can now record things on your screen the same way you would normally do a screen cap, but now you can record videos of your actions. For example, if you want to make a short training video for how to use something in your workplace, say a Slackboard or Trello or something like that, this could come in real handy. Absolutely. And, and you know, you can, you can show people, uh, you know, the blow-by-blow blow description of a game that you've played and a particularly good play that you've done or something along those lines. It's, um, it's opening up some really interesting avenues in terms of the use of uh, screen recording. Well, they couldn't ignore video. It's so hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Snap- Mugatu. Yeah, Snapchat had been ripped off by Instagram and <laughs> Facebook had ripped that off with Facebook stories and everyone's doing it, so mm. they needed to embed that more in their handsets. Absolutely. And, and I, th- I think, Vanessa, you mentioned uh, before we came in that you are really excited about... Uh, Wi-Fi password sharing. Yeah, this is one of those things that you don't think about until they mention it and you say, that will save me time. What the feature is, is that normally if you want to share your Wi-Fi with somebody else, you go over and you type your password into their device or you yell it across a room at them and they type it very insecurely. Or as we have on my in my house, it's scribbled on a piece of paper on the fridge. Exactly. Not exactly secure. Yeah. So now um, if someone nearby uh, requests access to your home network, that you can 
let them join it by just clicking like an accept on your device. Which is fantastic. And yeah. it's, a, it's a lot better than saying, all right, lowercase c, H to uh, capital F, B, you know, yes. you, it's it's a really interesting and innovative time saver. Yeah, go and change your password, Dan. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> now we'll that I've, I've said bit. it on air, that was my actual password. So what did you think about the newly mentioned QR code support? <laughs> I thought it was really quaint. I like the idea that they're... Um, wanting people to continue using it. We're so used to QR code bashing and now it's come full circle and people maybe, have decided they need it again. Maybe Apple will make it cool. That's into, imagine what kind of topsy-turvy world are we going to be living <laughs> in where the QR codes are back because Apple decided they should be. I don't know. So they've, they've built in the, scannable, uh, the scanning ability of QR codes into the iOS 11 camera. Um, so Android users won't get why it's taken this long because they've had this it, for a long time. Absolutely. And uh, it's funny because I always thought that it was an inherent piece of Apple technology, which explains, but it explains now why I've been trying so hard to scan those QR codes out of fun and it's so never I worked on my iPhone. I almost remember the four times in my life that I've needed to find another QR scanning app to download, to use <laughs> in some weird situation. For example, a Nike competition, you know, <laughs> trying to use a weird information board in Morocco, <laughs> not being able to read anything else on the board and thinking, Maybe this QR code will help. <laughs> Look, <laughs> there's it, a few other very weird situations that I did not think were replicable. <laughs> Look, it does serve a purpose and it's nice to see that you were able to actually find. I'm yet to use a QR code effectively mm. and to have my life be uh, in any way detrimented by the fact that the QR code did not mm. work. Mm. Before we uh, move on to other topics, I do would like, uh, I would like to mention the... Um, most ridiculous thing that I thought about uh, WWDC this year. Now, have you used the Apple Pencil? I have not. It's a really awesome piece of kit. So particularly if you're a designer or an artist, you can get an iPad and have a pencil that is uh, it's pressure sensitive. It works as a pencil on your iPad. Of course, it costs a lot of money and it is Apple proprietary, but it, and it does have a lightning connector at the top, which kind of looks like where the eraser would normally be mm-hmm. so you can recharge it. But uh, apparently uh, users of the Apple Pencil have um, been up in arms about the fact that how on earth are we meant to store it? Apple have... Uh, your, your prayers have been answered, people, because <laughs> Apple have uh, created a leather pencil case. It holds one Apple pencil and will cost you the princely sum of $60. So it's a tiny, tiny case. It's 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 a case for one pencil. That's outrageous. It is outrageous. That's, that's not, but yeah. I can I can think of at least three people I know who will go out and buy it. <laughs> and that's probably sadder than, sadder than the fact that there is $60. Well, it's just a, it's a problem waiting for a solution. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's of, certainly a problem. We've got lots of designers in Melbourne. I'm sure they'll have better solutions than that. I think people are scrambling to apple.com right now to buy it. <laughs> I can hear them. Okay. Not the vegans. There needs to be a vegan solution. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, there will be, I'm sure, a vinyl version for those of us who, <laughs> who do not like the idea of leather. Look, I must share my happiest news story of the week. This is beautiful. Uh, we have covered prosthetic 3D printed uh, devices and, and limbs and, and things with medical applications before. But the NHS, so the, uh, the UK National Health Service, has actually begun their first clinical trial of a new type of prosthesis. And um, it's 3D printed devices for child amputees based on popular Disney characters. This is so great. Cute. So even better is that normal prostheses for kids, uh, the currently available ones with controllable fingers, can cost up to, uh, this is all in pounds, 60,000 pounds. And because kids grow, they actually have to keep 
investing and reinvesting in mm. new changed um, pieces. Absolutely. So that's really prohibitive cost. These hands that we're talking about with fully movable digits cost £5,000. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge advance. Um, it's And it's exciting because it brings uh, prosthetic technology which is uh, more functional and more uh, customizable into the, um, I suppose, re- or within the reach, to, for want of a better word, I'm sorry, um, of people who may not afford it, particularly as it will be subsidised by the NHS, yeah. which is essentially uh, the, the British Medicare for yeah. those who aren't uh, really aware of how it works. So even better, um, the Bristol-based firm who have been working with 10 children at a local hospital during the six-month trial, they're called Open Bionics. What they've done is reached out to Disney and said, look, it'd be great if we could make these prosthetics something that the kids don't have to be embarrassed about. Mm. It would be great if they could be a bit cool. And Disney have agreed to a royalty-free licence to the company, which means they can base their devices on designs from characters from Iron Man, um, PlayStation game uh, Deus Ex, uh, Frozen, Star Wars. So you can have Luke Skywalker's bionic hand. You can have... An Iron Man arm. You can have, you know, some sort of frozen designed arm. It's it's pretty amazing, and like, and I and I think giving kids the confidence uh, that they would need that obviously would have taken a hit if if they if they've been hit with something as horrible as losing a losing a limb um, is is m- worth all the money in the world. It just makes you so happy. You know, you can see uh, a, f- a photo in, in uh, the story that I found on the independent.co.uk of a girl who's chosen an arm from Deus Ex. And, you know, it's, it's a little girl and she's got this tough-looking black, you know, modular... <laughs> Just awesome, futuristic-looking arm and looks so happy. And you just think, this is really making a difference in people's lives. This is what, you know, making um, manufacturing cheaper and better should be able to do. This is amazing. Absolutely. It's it's great to see. In further news that's um, been coming out recently, the Microsoft Surface laptop has come out and it's getting quite positive reviews overall Mm -hmm. with a few cautionary little bits Um, and those cautionary bits tend to be because this laptop while it looks like a normal form factor on the outside you know it's it's pretty it's pretty Mm -hmm. air-like when you open it there is a technical fabric on where you know all around the keyboard and trackpad okay so like a kind of like a mesh uh, I suppose canvassy type feel is that what the, what they're going for? I don't or? know because I've only seen photos. I think we'll have to rush to stores and um, stroke the laptop and see <laughs> see what this really feels like. A furry computer. So it's called. It's not furry. <laughs> it's called Alcantara. Oh, have you I've, heard of this? I've, well, no, I've I've heard. Al- Alcantara, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but I've seen Alcantara um, advertised as a uh, upholstery in cars. Right. So um, luxury Alcantara seating, I, I've seen. I've seen in you know advertised uh, cars. So. So people who it's who, a woven fabric. Yeah. Essentially. So people who already have Microsoft um, covers for the Surface Pro tablet might have felt this fabric already. Oh, it's okay. the same fabric that's right. there. Um, there aren't many reports of problems with it. It does pick up crumbs and lint sometimes, but <laughs> you could say that for any keyboard. Absolutely. And all, with this keyboard, all you need is a lint brush and you can actually get it off. Yeah. Uh, the reviewer from Verge uh, said that he tried smearing some Caesar salad dressing on the palm rests and wiped it off completely with a damp cloth. That's, which is 
disgusting. This is the advised treatment. <laughs> that is disgusting. I, I really like the extent to which this reviewer went to well, he, to, he to test the product. There's definitely some quality control there. I'm not. I'm not sure how I feel about a fabric computer though. Yeah. So look, that's always going to be a subjective mm. thing, and we're going to leave the fabric discussion at that point and actually get to the core. Mm. To be specific, the Intel Core i5 or i7 processor. Nice, nice segue there. I'm, I'm working on. It. I've been. I've been listening to Warren for weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and listening and learning. Um, there's a choice of 4, 8 or 16 gigabytes of RAM. Um, there's an Intel HD 620 or Iris 640 graphics card. Mm-hmm. Um, the screen, oh, well, it's got the usual Microsoft 3 to 2 aspect ratio. Yeah. Uh, some people really like that because they have to scroll less. It is just it, depends on what you're used to, I think. It's, it's compatible with the Surface Pen, which is um, sold separately, but I'm not, and I'm not sure if it comes with its own uh, one pen leather cover, but um, it's also useful for, you know, <laughs> st- stylus on screen, which is yeah. actually really good. Controversially, they've also gone very minimal on the port front. Oh. So there's no USB-Cs here. There Ooh. is one USB-A 3.0 port, one mini display port, a headphone jack and a Surface connector. So you will be carrying around a little... An adapter. Adapter. A, a, a multi-tool. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. So, you know, there you go. It would be nice to see more laptops with an SD card little slot as well. I've, I've, that's that's on my wish list. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm kind of annoyed that they've stopped doing it. Mm. You know, that beautiful golden period of like three, <laughs> or, three or four years ago where every computer came with one. Yeah. And then they've just discovered or decided that SD cards are an obsolete technology despite the fact that every camera that doesn't have a phone attached to it still uses SD cards. Mm. Um, I, I find that frustrating and I'm probably going to hold on to my older computers for longer than I normally would because of the fact that it's you have the SD uh, availability in there. So there's no radical changes in battery life here. They've claimed 14.5 hours for local video playback, but real-world use was closer to eight or nine hours. Mm-hmm. That's pretty standard. Yep. A working day, if you're lucky. Uh, it is. It'll get you through that. Hmm. So... It's definitely something to look at when you're comparing laptop purchases. Um, The good stuff is you get a free upgrade to Windows 10 Pro. Uh, People are saying that the touchscreen is quite beautiful Mm -hmm. and it works very responsively. So is the the upgrade just for the Surface or is it for any other Windows products that you have? No, it's for this Surface laptop. Right, okay. Mm. Uh, As far as I can understand it, Mm. yeah. And... Yeah, it's definitely worth looking at. It's out there. Go and see if you like it. Let us know what you think about that uh, Alcantara fabric. Alcantara? I'm not sure (laughs) that I've nailed that. Alcantara does sound like the name of of some kind of gangster. It does. Yeah, or perhaps a football. You can call me Al. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Let's let's stop with you. Let's leave there. Yes. Look, we've got a message to hear and then we'll be back with Nathan Oxley in a moment. Uh, so we'd like to welcome somebody to studio. Nathan Oxley is the Managing Director of IC12, which was established in 2006. They design, develop and prototype electronic sound and lighting concepts and products. They're keen to share their experience of how to bring technology to market and we're keen to hear more. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in here. Now, um, we wanted to sort of dig behind your business because when we, when we have a look at it, there's some very slick uh, lighting and sound and sort of visual products on your site. And we'll get to those a little bit later. But um, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the history of um, IC12. Uh, we started off as a software development company. Uh, primarily, we were doing websites and back-end database development and developing systems for um, institutions and, and, and bigger business. 
And what we did is through a series of events, we ended up uh, becoming the technical arm behind a group called the AIPP, which is Australian Institute of Professional Photography. And we wrote this uh, big um, photographic judging system for them. And, and we ran that for many years and through doing that, we made a lot of contacts into the photography industry. We met uh, a lot of guys and built up some significant databases of, um, of people that we'd market to. And behind that is uh, my family business is electronics. And after a period of time, the, we found that the software market was becoming very saturated in terms of trying to run a business because of a lot of tools had come out in, in um, making database development and other things easier. So we were looking for something new to keep the business driving forward and innovative. And um, we took what we'd known and, and the databases we'd built up in terms of um, how our audience and then lent back on the electronic side of things and started looking at what value we could bring into that industry to begin with, of photography. And, and we really started to play with and develop LED lighting as a, as a light source for photographers to use versus traditional flashes. It's incredible because it's the, the classic tale of, of pivoting and looking to the market to, to sort of tell you where to go. And that always sounds so much easier when you look at a bigger company who can let skills come and go to, to change. But when you're a small company, I imagine that's quite challenging in terms of the, the skills that you have there. Um, did you already have a fair bit of hardware experience coming to that? Um, I, well, I started my life in electronics. So mm. I, I started pulling computers apart while I was still in school. And um, my dad had come home from work and the home computer would be in a thousand pieces and I'd have to put it back together. So I, I went from school into electronics. I spent four or five years doing electronics before I got into software. And so I had a, a good understanding of that. It was uh, the family business was still electronics at that time and, and engineering and innovation. Mm. So I, I kind of put my foot back in that, in that other world and kind of brought them both together. So yeah, it, having that technical background was a, a huge help. And in photography, people can be really a bit uh, slavish to their brands and, and very, you know, the, have a lot of brand loyalty and uh, trying new things can be risky at any time. Did you, did you find a welcoming audience in the phot uh, photography market? Yeah, we did. We, um, it probably helped that we'd been working with them in a different capacity for a while and so we'd built up a level of trust. And uh, you're right that it's hard to fight brand loyalty. What you need to do is if you're not going to fight that, you need to bring real significant value. And so we were looking to not create Me Too style technologies. We wanted to create something new and different that brought real value. Cool. Um, it's, it's interesting because you, you guys do, you know, the creation on the ground of the, of the products that you create. Uh, but we're hearing a lot about, you know, in, in kind of the broader uh, discourse and media about how manufacturing in Australia is kind of on its way and on its last legs. Do you have like a, an opinion on that kind of on, on, the, on the, I suppose, the, the strength and health of the Australian manufacturing kind of scene? I think it's... It depends. Um, mass market produ production of, of 
components and products the way we think of it now is very, very hard to compete in Australia. We, we just can't match the um, sheer scale and, and the, the cost that you can actually get components out of, out of the Asian countries. Um, our wages are higher, our running overheads are higher, our cost of living is higher. So that all affects the cost that we can produce parts and, and components at. But if you've got a niche industry or if you look for those manufacturing segments where you're not catering to the, the mass market but you're looking for um, specialty industries, there is still some very, very healthy um, industries in Australia. Cool. So electronics is one part of the picture when designing um, new products, but the prototyping and the manufacturing hold a lot of tricky problems in them and a lot of a lot of areas to learn before you can master those. Uh, how have things like you know, or do things like three D printing or um, you know, getting knowledge from industrial designers or what have you sort of play into how your business has learnt how to do that? Uh, the advent of 3D printing has probably completely reinvigorated and changed our, the way we work. Mm. Um, as an example, previously if we had a product that we wanted to bring to life, our expectation was that it would take somewhere in the order of eighty dollars to $150,000 plus the better part of one to two years before that product would be at a level where it was ready to go to production. And so you've got revisions after revisions of prototyping, um, all, all everything that goes into that. And it used to be that expensive and take that much time is because we'd have to CNC components pre-moulding uh, or use other other um, other methods to to produce mechanical parts. Mm-hmm. And what would happen was you design the part; it'd look good on screen. You would then go out and you'd, you'd pay to get that tooled or, or produced by a third-party company. They would give you your part back within two weeks to a month to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And then you've, in the meantime, what you've done is you've either evolved some of the product concepts or um, you've, you've not accounted for something on the way through. And, and what happens is you get the part back and it's not right. And so you then spend a couple of thousand more to get the part redone with a minor change to fit or to, to accommodate something. You've got another six to eight weeks and away you go. Whereas now with 3D printing, with our process, we can do that whole cycle in under three months. We're, we're turning product around in under 20 to 30 grand, including all the electronic side of things, um, because it just it makes us so much more agile. Um, we can conceive of a part, we can put it on the printers, we have the part within 24, 48 hours, we can sit down as a team, we check the, in- the interaction of the part, mm. um, the styling mm. of the part, the strength, all the things that go into it. We make decisions, we rework the file, we print it again and, and that three-month period is condensed down to a week. So That's it's incredible. just completely changed the way we work. Yeah. Amazing. I wonder, um, is there much government support for people who are manufacturing in Australia, especially on smaller scales? There is a lot of state and federal-based support that can be had. Um, 
sometimes it's hard to access mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to know where to look to find it but there but there is good support so if you're if you're in an r&d cycle and you're innovating something new then you know the federal government in, in terms of your tax uh, when it's time to place to lodge your taxes there are there are significant um r&d programs there that can help you um as well as that at the at the state level there is small grants that are always on offer um there's a lot of companies who are registered as um part of these grant schemes and and you can you get a lot of benefits more than just the financial side of it it actually puts you with like-minded people and companies that you can can operate with and and work a bit smarter as well Mm. we're about to hear from you nathan if you could tell us please what products you have out there at the moment that people could look at and and see to get a bit of a sense a deeper sense of what your company does uh we've got we've got a few products that have been in the market for a few years now in the um lighting products for photography and and um, personal lighting mm. so uh, we created some LED lighting for flash and video for photographers and then from that a whole accessory range but then a few years ago we also developed a, a small little micro light which is Bluetooth controlled um, and this is the QB. That's the QB. It's yeah. super. Yeah, it's super. Yeah, so, so the QB's got Bluetooth in it, and you can you can um, connect a whole bunch of them to your phone, and then you control the intensity and everything via a, an app. So, that was an interesting exercise for us because that was the first product we created which actually had app interaction into it. I know that there's a lot of food bloggers out there who would like something like this because I've seen them, you know, asking their friends to put their their flashlight on their camera or use it as a slave light or something. Yeah. And yeah, so that's exactly what it was designed for. It was, it was for off-camera flash and video for your phone so you could take better selfies, better food blogging, all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it's pretty excellent. But your most recent product is really interesting because it's a speaker, but it's unlike any other speaker that I've seen before. And we'll have to get a shot of this and put it out on the Twitter for people to have a, a peek at. Can you tell us about this speaker? Yeah, so we've got um, – so we run a, a small – team of developers um, and our team is a mixture of uh, electronics hardware design uh, we've got a physicist we've got um, uh, firmware and so we've got a, a full range team that we utilize to bring products to life and, and that team um, is kind of almost a shared resource between a couple of companies that we have mm. uh, one of them's called involve audio and they're a, a They've been around for a very long time, and they've been. They've basically spent their whole life working out all of the problems in the audio industry and overcoming them because they're massive audio nerds. And um, one of the things that they developed a few years ago was they took uh, a technology in speakers which has been around for about forty or so years, which is called electrostatic speakers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they work different to cone speakers in that you're not vibrating and moving a cone. You, you put a um, sheet of mylar, which is kind of like glad wrap, you put it under tension and you move a couple of thousand volts across it. It's electrically charged and it vibrates the membrane um, super, super fast, With but it, you don't get a lot of movement, which means then you don't get a lot of distortion. So they're, they're very, very precise speakers where you probably get 10 times less distortion than you get out of a regular speaker. Um, the technology never became mainstream because 
they used to be the size of, you know, they'd be eight feet tall and about right. three feet wide. They were, you'd see them in the homes of your very, very high-end audio nerds. So um, what am I looking at here? What size is this, this so, speaker? So what we've been able to do as a team is overcome a lot of the issues and shrink down electrostatic speakers to get the level of volume or, or the, the loudness that you want out of a regular speaker maintain that low distortion, um, make them repeatable in terms of manufacture and and then get a really wide frequency range out of them. So um, that speaker, we've shrunk it down to be kind of desktop sized mm -hmm. and um, we've created another one which is designed to work with flat panel TVs. So this home. is probably like 10 by 30 centimetres, yeah, something like that? Yeah, it's about 35 centimetres. The whole speaker is about one centimetre thick. It's refreshing to have a speaker I can lift. Um, <laughs> there are plenty of speakers out there that I can't. I can see the back of your hand through the speaker. Yeah, yeah. it's exciting. It is It is a pretty sexy speaker. It's like if Dyson came to speakers and um, and made something that radically changed the shape. The way they did with, say, the fan. You know, when you look at a Dyson fan, it doesn't look like what's in, you know, the picture in your head of what a fan should look like. Mm. This is similar. When I picture a speaker, I don't think of this. And if I saw this on a shelf or a desk... I wouldn't know that it was a speaker. I would think it was some sort of fancy bit of desk art. Mm. Yes, and it's, it's, it is and if sound came out of it, I think I'd be quite impressed. Yeah, totally. yeah that's, that's a very common reaction is, is you, you hand it to somebody and they, what is it, is mm. their first reaction. Mm. Um, you tell them it's a speaker and it's disbelief. You plug it in and then people are generally blown away. They can't believe it. The great thing about electrostatics is that um, the sound radiates evenly out the front and the back of the speaker. Right. And so the rear image bounces around the room and you get a much fuller um, range of sound out of it. It's, it's, we, call, we call our system expanse speakers because it, it gives you that really expansive room-filling sound. So would the ideal thing be not to mount them against a wall? You'd want to leave them with a bit of space? Uh, yeah, well, you can, you can mount them within about an inch or two of the wall. Right. As long as you've got a little right. bit of an angle, you just need you know, maybe 10 degrees to be able to bounce that rear image out. But you can run them very flat to the wall. Wow, that's um, that's kind of technical. If people want to hear more about that, you actually have an Indiegogo campaign for these at the moment, the Expanse Speakers. Um, so if you look up that, the Expanse Speakers, the ultimate sonic experience, you'll find this product by a local Melbourne company. And it's really worth having a look at the how it works um, you know, with an Indiegogo, you've always got an amazing video and this is no exception. Um, I didn't actually, I hadn't heard of electrostatic speakers until we had a look at this. Um, yeah. So, so you, you say they've been around for about 40 years. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a long-standing technology, but they, um, they never became mainstream because they had inherent issues. Mm. One of which is the original versions that actually arc uh, electricity from one speaker to the other, and if you're standing between them, it was slightly shocking. Yeah. So you you mentioned, I think, did you say two thousand <laughs> volts just before? Or? Yeah. So so. But with it looks these, pretty though. It is so yeah, particularly with the sparking light. You, you yeah. want that with your sound on light show. So in in the amplifier, you've got um, some transformers, and they step the voltage up, mm -hmm. but it, it's voltage, there's no current in there, so they're perfectly safe. When the speakers are on, you could put your tongue in them if you wanted to. <laughs> um, you, you can't get a shock from Slowly them. Slowly so. putting the speaker down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so how, do, how do you, like, particularly, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you've worked on, you're taking existing technologies and improving them. How do you approach, like, something like this where, you know, you're basically going back to 
square one in how or, or coming at it from a completely different direction? How, how what, what, What's the process of coming up with those ideas? Uh, this was a little bit of a curving route. It was um, the improvement to the electrostatics came out of Charlie, who's the head designer for, for the audio. He wanted to create the perfect surround sound format and because... You're old. Before you had Dolby Digital, you had um, Dolby uh, ProLogic 2, which was a stereo surround sound format and a whole bunch of others. They were all had their own issues. They were never really perfect. He wanted this perfect system and so he spent a lot of time developing that. Did all of, all of the hard work to make that happen um, and got to a point where he said, right, I want to tackle the next issue. And the next issue he had with surround sound was um, generally you've got a hero seat. You've got one seat in the room where they get a perfect imaging mm. where everything's hitting your ears at the perfect spot. He wanted to eliminate that and so he started working on getting rid of that pro- problem and came up with a system which was a combination of using delays and using electrostatic speakers because they're very directional and was able to, as a mixture of um, software and mechanical design and hardware, mm-hmm. was able to basically eliminate that. So everybody sitting within the four speaker positions could have the same perceived um, imaging within the room. If train's going past your left, everybody thinks it's going past the left or over your head or wherever it is. So the the development of these speakers was driven in part by solving another problem. Um, so it's, it's funny like that. Yeah, like, I mean, so many innovations have come from, and you know, accidentally discovering a, a use for something that they didn't realise that it would work for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So is having a crowdsourcing campaign new to you? No, we've run a few campaigns. This is our fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, we've run a couple of campaigns. So the QB originally and one of our lighting products we ran. We've run another sound campaign before and now we're running this one. So, so what do you think the benefits are of going the crowdsourcing route? Oh, there are a lot. Um, you've got the financial benefits of a successful campaign, but we find that it is a perfect platform to be able to um, launch new technologies. Mm. Um, potentially you can have a half-baked idea and you think there's a market for something, you you believe you're on the right track, you're not f- sure of the feature sets, you can launch it as a campaign and you can utilise that to get real-world feedback. You get a lot of... You get a lot of um, comments from people asking, does it do this, can it do that? Mm. So it helps you shape and polish what you want your product to be. Mm -hmm. If you don't get any questions, you don't get any interest, you might want to reconsider and go, is there really a market for it? Um, But then greater than that as well is that if you do get a good response to it, it can open you up to international markets as well. You've got um, a lot of big companies now, big big technology companies that, that look at crowdfunding programs that are running and they get in touch with a lot of small developers because if they're looking for innovation this is the new channels that they're they're out there trying to find the next big thing that they can kind of keep their business healthy and driving Mm. forward and beat their competitors so as a a local company how do you look at that worldwide market and and think you know i'm going to crack that do you go to consumer electronic product um you know uh, what are they like called? fairs? Or? Yeah, those sort of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I wanted to say conventions. <laughs> yeah, we do. We um, Well, I, 
that's kind of my role within the business. I, I work on um, probably the, the concept design of our products. Mm. So what that means is that I've got uh, the team of engineers who do all the hard work and what I do is interface between them and uh, who our current and potential customers or potential audiences and, and try and then refine the – package the technology probably into a commercial form. Um, what feature sets are required, um, what um, what other people are doing, what the expectations, what price points we have to meet. And so to, to go in partnership with that, then there's a lot of travelling, a lot of trade fairs, keeping an eye on, on what's happening, who's doing what, um, you know, what the latest things are. And then opening, generally what we do is when we have one of these things, I put as many prototypes in my suitcase as I can, make a whole lot of appointments and, and go see a whole lot of companies because it's a great... Those those fairs are a great place from a, a showcasing point of view mm-hmm. to get all those companies that you want in the one spot. So that's great for getting in front of other companies and distributors and, and um, you know, massive manufacturers who want to scale you up, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but it's clear that the, the collaborative nature of the, the testing process is pretty important to you, getting those users in there. Do you build that into your process um, earlier than, say, the crowdfunding stage? Some, uh, yeah, yes, we do at different levels. Mm. Um Sometimes we'll take the technology in its fairly raw form mm. and, and we'll shop it around to people we know, companies who may have some inkling, um, friends, family. We generally test it out pretty hard before we, we then push forward and try and go, okay, do, does this have potential to be a product mm. or a series of products? Mm. Um, so uh, personal, uh, not personal feedback, but Family and friends are probably the best early sounding board because they're just every they're day there. average mm. people, right? <laughs> so, you know, they want to buy TVs and speakers and things just like everybody else. So, so um, something that's really important to us and a lot of our listeners is uh, the whole life cycle of a product. You know, we don't want to feel like we're just mindlessly consuming um, products. Uh, how much do you think about that, the sort of end of life of your products or, you know, whether they can be modular or unpacked or... Uh, that's a major consideration. Um, that it, That's affected in a number of different ways um, th- to the point where once we have a product concept, um, we then pretty much pull the product apart and work out how we're going to manufacture it. Something has to be able to build at uh, a good price point so that it can be retailed at a good price point or, mm. or even you know, just sold direct. Mm. It's, it's got to be easy to build. Um, you don't want any exotic parts which are going to either cost the earth or be impossible or become end of life themselves. So the manif- being able to produce something and create products um, which are manufacturable then leads perfectly onto the serviceability of the product. Um, trying to get some commonality of parts across a range is something we always think of so that from a servicing point of view... Uh, if you can use one power supply across three products, it, it's, mm. it's important. Um, where are the breakable parts? Where are the losable parts? Um, where are those serviceable issues? Because, yeah, you have to offer a warranty on all your products, have to support your customers, and, and ideally you're trying to build a, build a uh, customer base that they have... Um, 
what's the word? Um, not respect, but they have confidence in what you're doing mm. and, and will continue to work with you and tell others about you as well. Great. Look, it's been a really illuminating conversation with you this evening, Nathan. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your journey and um, some of your products with us. I'm oh, really excited about this uh, Spectrum speakers. Like, I know, I know a lot of uh, our RRR audience are going to be all over because well, they are just if, you know, if you're tight on you know money, space, uh, lifting ability, yeah. you, know, you care about these sort of things in a speaker and you care about great quality sounds. So Absolutely. Yeah. And if, yeah, if, if we're talking about better quality sound than your traditional cones, then I think that um, you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change things yeah, more than we realise. Look, after the show, we will tweet out a link to the current Indiegogo campaign where you can find out more about the Expanse speakers. Uh, thanks for your time this evening. That's no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. In our weird news of the week... This week, Dan, <laughs> we have particularly... It's not that it, weird news, it's, actually. It's, it's, it's cute, though. It is kind of cute. It is. A recent user on Reddit created a burner account to share a mortifying story. On his first day as a junior software developer at a first salary job out of college, they had a copy and paste error and inadvertently erased all data from the company's production <laughs> database. Oh. Now, for those who don't work in development, there's usually you know, pre-production which is not vital. It's before things are out in the public domain. And then there's production, live. You do not test in production. It exists you out there. People are using it. Yeah. yeah. You're very careful about, you know, deploying and retracting and doing things in a very measured way, out of hours, that sort of thing. So this this person has said these, the chief technology officer told me to leave and never come back. He informed me that apparently legal would need to get involved due to the severity of the data loss. Um, it's it's a heart-wrenching post. He's pleading, he's offering, he's trying to redeem himself, hasn't heard from HR, has cried out to Reddit for help, and Reddit has answered. Reddit has said that if the story is real, which is always, you know, a bit of a risk on Reddit, that uh, it's really not the response that the company should have had. They should have... This has exposed vulnerabilities in the company's processes. It should never have happened. And um, there you go. It, it's quite heartwarming that people came to people his... Have, they've got defense. his back. The internet... For, for, uh, for a change, Reddit is uh, good for society, but we'll just leave it at that. Thanks to our <laughs> guest this evening, Nathan Oxley. Do stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Crew up next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.